gun. I, I can't focus unless the gun is on the table. Nothing is normal or natural or everything is game. I'm going to start a collection of puddings and coupons that can be redeemed for freaking fire miles. We have to get out of this building. They made soup out of my research department. See, this is the, the scene of the movie where you help me out. Well, everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. <laughs> what this book proposes is maybe he didn't. Uh, Hello and welcome to Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator, the only podcast that I'm aware of about Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> My name is Eric Anderson. My name is Jeremy Anderson. What up, what up? Hi. Hello. Welcome. This is the uh, the Royal Tenenbaums episode. Jeremy, we've got two great guests uh, that we're going to introduce here in a second. But before we do that, mm. we have a Patreon, don't we? We do have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. You can find a lot of great content on there, especially this month, which is the October month, the scariest month of all time. A lot of good Halloween stuff going on. Uh, as of this week, I believe we've, we've finished, right? As of, the, as of when this episode will drop correct we, you know we, i think this episode comes out after our idle hands episode so okay. we still have uh return, return of the Li- living yeah. dead got yeah. it got it okay yeah um but that all means that that will have meant we already covered hubie halloween which was a perfect oh, yes. film front to back <laughs> and uh we already covered what was the first one we did halloween 2 yeah yeah it's been a, it's been a great month i love halloween baby I'm, I'm having such a good time what a thrill Yes, and November, Jeremy, just uh, give the give the listeners a little uh, <laughs> peek at what what's to come on the Patreon in November. Okay, so November is a concept that my 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 partner came up with that I thought was very cool, <laughs> which is we're doing no shave November, which is all films where the main character or some <laughs> character is not allowed to shave <laughs> for the for the duration of the film. So think the movie Castaway is a really good example of a a film where. Tom Hanks is not allowed to shave because he's stranded on a desert island. Uh, Eric and me have yet to do research on this topic. So, so far, yeah. Castaway is <laughs> the only film we can think of. But Very open to requests, <laughs> if anyone, <laughs> We're sure if anyone knows of another movie where someone cannot shave, uh, <laughs> hit us up. Jeremy, can I shave during November? No, no way, shave. dude. No shave November. It's uh, it's like a tradition, I guess. Uh, Eric, actually, I've never seen you with even a mustache. Are you, are you yeah. able to to grow i am and it looks really bad that's why you've never you've never seen <laughs> you know what we could talk about my faults all day but i would rather introduce our guests uh did i did i did you say the link to the patreon by the way yeah patreon.com slash eric and jeremy yes donate uh, at the five dollar tier to get like i mean at this point at least a hundred or above a hundred slightly uh, episodes of unique shows that are not oh, available yeah. in, anywhere else. And we got a good community going on over there. A lot of good people. Yep. Brian, Dad wears glasses, mm-hmm. Drew. The, Drew. We, we know all of them by name. The list goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeremy, uh, I would like to introduce our guests. I'm a fan of their podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Listeners of this show know that I uh, started watching Northern Exposure for the first time. And one of my favorite parts about watching that show is I get to go and listen to these guys uh, talk about every episode. So uh, I would like to to welcome Lee and Charles from uh, Northern Overexposure. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hello. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting us on. 
thanks for coming on. It's you know, it's it's so bizarre to uh, listen to someone on a podcast and then talk to them. Yeah, and we're still uh, like, this is. I'm life. just like voice. Like I just hear your voice, you know. So I'm still just. But yeah. but now it's like we can in a way interface. Well, just picture a six foot eight muscular uh, <laughs> with a killer guy. mustache. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, with a great mustache. Uh, so, uh, Northern Overexposure. I I'm a big fan of the podcast. I think sort of the premise is is you know. Uh, well, I'll let you guys explain it. But first, I wanted to uh, ask both of you. Uh, because I have found myself explaining what Northern Exposure is to people <laughs> when I'm telling them what I'm watching. And I want to hear, what what, do, what would Ali and Charles say when uh, someone asks, what the heck is uh, Northern Exposure? So it's like a fish out of water story. Uh, I guess I should preface, it's a show from the 90s. Uh, and it's about a Jewish doctor from New York who is transplanted to Alaska in a small quaint town. And uh, if this sounds like it might have like some similarities to other shows, it's because it kind of has that sort of ripple effect on a lot of uh, TV today. You know, you could trace it back to, oh, you know, this show is just like Northern Exposure meets X or something. Um, Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's an accurate depiction, fish out of water. It's also really surreal. It breaks the fourth wall Mm. constantly. (laughs) Well... Not constantly, yeah. but like many episodes, they'll actually directly just talk to you or they'll reference saying like, oh, the episode can't end here. Like we still have our third <laughs> act coming. So if you're a fan of Alaska or a fan of Jewish doctors, uh, you don't have to <laughs> like both, but you got to like one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely recommend watching Northern Exposure. Definitely uh, recommend watching Northern Exposure. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that show gets very silly too, and there's a lot of uh, they're not afraid to do like dream sequences. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I think there's an entire episode that was a dream, if I remember correctly. And yeah, like two. it was a Halloween episode. Uh huh. In, in season three, I feel like season two, like every single episode has has one or more dream sequences. Yeah. So uh, what? So to explain a little bit about Northern Overexposure. What's kind of the premise of your podcast? So it's me and Charles. Uh, I grew up kind of watching the show in high school, um, and I've known Charles since high school. I'm pretty sure I probably forced him to watch an episode back in the day, but, uh, but now it's kind of like Charles is watching it for the first time every episode. And uh, this is a show that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't heard of it. Um, it's kind of forgotten. You can only really watch it now on DVD. Like it hasn't never been available for streaming. I have no idea who our audience is, but people are listening. Um, but so with that, we try to sort of expand the reach of the show, uh, in our own way to, you know, analyze the show, but also every episode will bring on a guest who usually has never seen the show before. And, and, uh, Eric, you were on the podcast for uh season four episode five mm-hmm. yeah yeah i had a had a great time uh watching that episode again and, <laughs> and talking about it um hi now how would you jeremy has still not watched northern exposure i've been talking about this damn show right. for months at this point i know well it's it's for we were going through all of twin peaks at the time and i kind of yeah. felt like i needed to finish like wrap up twin peaks like in my emotionally and then give myself a little room to start northern exposure because 
it's something I've always been interested in watching. And Eric, you know, you started getting into it and my roommate was a big fan of it. And so, but I know that it's kind of famously hard to get a hold of, like at least in its original mm-hmm. form, like it does the DVD box set, does it have like all the original music and everything in there? Or did the licenses yes. uh, go up, get no. it, go, go ahead. run out or? Well, uh, yeah, mine, so mine doesn't. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Go <laughs> ahead. Uh, you no, know, that's right. The, the first season has the original broadcast music, but um, when they came out with the... So it never... When it first came out, it, it wasn't a box set. It was like a season at a time. And the second mm-hmm. season, I'm not exactly sure what happened. There's some information online about it, but they replaced a lot of the um, music that was maybe more expensive or harder to secure. They replaced it with sort of like royalty-free music. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, Lee decided to make a podcast on a television show that you just can't watch on any streaming service. <laughs> yeah, like you have to jump through hoops. Yeah, we wanted to make sure this was a very widely listened to uh, audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, but well, I, 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 am, I assume that you guys have found some success in that. Like, there probably aren't a lot of Northern Exposure podcasts, and that the show has quite a feverish cult following. Does it not? Yeah, there's a big. Uh, fan group um on facebook specifically that's kind of where we've connected the most and are just really nice like really active uh, community on facebook right that's cool i mean that's really that's worth something you know i think we found yeah. like when we were doing the twin peaks uh run that we were getting fans from all over the place who like just are die hard twin peaks people you know like and uh and it's so funny because like me and eric's show the way it works is we'll cover a topic and then we'll drop it completely we'll even change the name (laughs) of our podcast (laughs) so so we like get fans and lose fans like it ain't nothing (laughs) yeah (laughs) we're still waiting for the paul ws anderson fans (laughs) to creep in (laughs) yeah where's your event horizon heads at you know (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say, like, part of the appeal of Northern Exposure to me was how, wh- how it was so difficult to get a hold of. Yeah. There was something about that for me where I was like, <laughs> man, this is, it made me want to want to watch it more. I, I definitely recommend it to people. I, I, uh, I think the box set that I got was on Amazon for, like, 50 bucks or something. Yeah. And there is, there's like, a... Six there's seasons. Like a, yeah. There's yeah. like a Australian or like UK uh, region Blu-ray that came out. I think it's through Shout Factory uh, that has supposedly has the original broadcast music too. So I will say like, you know, there's a few moments where the royalty free music, you can kind of notice it and notice that, it, that it's not supposed to be there, but it's just such a small barrier, you know, it's just, yeah. it, it's worth it. I mean, if you, if you want to get into, if you're interested in Northern exposure, I'm so happy that I finally just pulled the trigger on that thing. Cause it's, it's yeah. a great show. I've seen it countless times and I don't think I've ever watched it with the, with like the original music, you know? So I asked you guys what you what what you would like to to talk about, and uh, you said pit, you said Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, w- describe your your history and maybe your uh, the decision making process there and picking Tenenbaums. Uh, I don't know. I've always liked this as as you know one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, and uh, I, I really I, I think I gave the decision to Charles. I said, Charles, you pick the director, and then we can decide on on a film, but. Uh, but I will say, sort of an anecdote, the first time I saw this movie, I watched it on an iPod. 
Like I had just bought an iPod <laughs> from my friend, like a used iPod, and it had this movie on it. And I just remember laying down like on a couch and watched the entire movie on this tiny screen. <laughs> I would think that Royal Tenenbaums would be a Wes Anderson parody if it was made today because it's so quintessentially Wes Anderson. So I thought that this mm. would be a really good pick if you were to dive into a director. Uh, I think the first time that I watched World of Bombs was in high school as well because I was in that period of my life where you watch a lot of like films that are beyond your grasp, like reading Infinite Jest from David Foster Wallace or something, but not truly understanding it. So I wanted to like pretend I was deeper than I was. I was like, I want to watch like a lot of Wes Anderson films. And uh, yeah, that was now, uh, ever since then, it's been a while since I've actually watched it, but this is my third time watching it, I believe. Love it. Jeremy, what uh, you've seen Tenenbaums before. We've talked about it. What, what's yeah. your history with this movie? I've seen every Wes Anderson movie I, I'll just throw out there. So, like, <laughs> uh, that's yeah. that's that's one of those things where it's, like, sort of a, sort of a rite of passage. Same thing with Paul Thomas Anderson, to be to be honest. Like, it's just, you know, when, when they have films that come out, it's, like, sort of a big, a widely anticipated thing for, for me. Um, but it wasn't always the case. Uh, once upon a time, I had never seen a Wes Anderson movie, and you know, this was about the year two thousand three or so, and he had made you know three movies at that point, and I didn't know who he was, and I was in high school and uh, just getting into you know buying DVDs and 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 getting into film a little bit, and you know, uh, had saw like this, the cover had always intrigued me for the Tenenbaums. And I think I just rented it from Blockbuster on a Lark uh, mm-hmm. one evening. And I just, uh, I, I did not get the movie at all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I watched it and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what, what, what is this? Like, I was like, this is, this is trash. Like I just, I just totally, it totally missed me. Um, and uh, I guess like, somebody had to sit me down and be like, no, 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 no. This is like, this is actually hilarious. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. What do you mean? It's hilarious. This, it seemed like at best it was like a drama. I didn't get, but they were like, no, no, yeah. no. Like it has a rhythm and a sense of humor to it. And like, it, it actually took me watching it with like other people in the room who were like laughing appropriately at like funny moments. And I don't know. It's this, it's actually the same sensation. I remember feeling the first time I saw the Anchorman movie where I was like, I was like, this is the first time I'm seeing humor this like this. And I like had to retrain my brain into like, Oh, like this is actually brilliant comedy, but it sometimes I'm, I'm really slow to those things. Like I need a little jolt. I need a little help. Like I need other others around me to, to show me like, no, this is what's funny about it. You know? Um, and uh yeah so so tenant palms was the first wes anderson movie i saw and uh oh great then i, think I it was the first one i saw as well sorry yeah so, no 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 yeah yeah, yeah. i think so yeah. charles for you first yeah, one? Well, yeah i'm pretty sure it was my first one it was either that or rushmore I, I honestly can't remember which one i watched first though yeah um for me like i actually wouldn't actually see bottle rocket or rushmore for a while after this but mm-hmm. um but yeah, I over the years the Royal Tenenbaums has sort of grown like a oak tree in my mind. Like it has started <laughs> out where I didn't get it at all, couldn't stand it to this is not just my favorite Wes Anderson movie, but this is also maybe in my top 10 of all time just like favorite 
films. And uh, we'll get into like how I felt about it upon my whatever number this is, 20th screening of it, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but this is, again, this is like a, this is an all timer for me or at least, you know, thought it was. But I, I, I'll admit, like I, I haven't wa- actually sat down and watched it front to back in probably a good maybe six years. So uh, it was um, interesting to go back to. So we'll we'll get into like kind of my thoughts about it maybe as we wrap. But uh, but that's my history of it. What about you, Eric? What, where are you? Yeah, I feel like I saw this movie. This was my first. This was also my first Wes Anderson. And I feel like I saw this movie uh, like my family had rented it. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> I was at the age where like I could watch rated R movies, but like my parents would fast forward or like make me shut my eyes or something during certain <laughs> parts. And I think this was one of those situations. And I remember really liking it, but not understanding it at all. Uh, and specifically really loving uh, Ben Stiller's performance. <laughs> uh, we were a big, uh, we were a big meet the parents household. We love that movie over there. Uh, and uh, this to me is like prime Ben Stiller era he's just so funny in this and uh i just remember really uh that that's really what i remember most about that uh first watch and yeah i've seen this movie you know every couple years i'll watch tenenbaums it's kind of become it's become a mainstay in my you know repeat viewing uh habits and yeah it was great it was great to revisit it um yeah so what do you what do you say we get into uh some of the background and trivia about this cool so, I don't know if you guys are aware, this movie was directed by Wes Anderson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Written by Anderson and Owen Wilson. I think this is the last uh, Owen Wilson co-writing with Anderson project we get. Um, and I have this theory that I do think some of the later Anderson films are funny, but I think Owen Wilson brings like a certain comedic totally, sensibility. Yeah, totally believe that. Has like he bottle written rocket. I don't think he has. No. Yeah. It's wow. kind of a shame because he is, man. I'm. A, I, how do you guys feel about Owen Wilson? I love Owen Wilson. Fans? Yeah. Yeah. Charles, Owen Wilson fan. Uh, I'm a big fan of the meme of him saying "Wow." That like constantly <laughs> gets posted. I'm a huge fan of that. As an actor, I actually think he has a lot of potential for dramatic chops. I know that he's uh, ah. casting comedy a lot, but I always had the theory that. Comedy actors make for fantastic drama actors, but it doesn't work the other way around. It's like a square rectangle argument because comedy <laughs> is about timing in order to make a joke funny. And once you get timing down, you can do dramatic roles really well. And I think that mm. Owen Wilson, if he really wanted to, I think that he could get cast into more of those roles, possibly, you know, maybe even get an Oscar nom. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I would, would love, love that to for see. him. Owen Wilson do like a punch drunk love style like psychological thriller or something. Um, What's the closest he's gotten to that? Like, uh, hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking at his filmography right now. <laughs> I know uh, he was supposed to yeah. be in Tropic Thunder. He was supposed to be the character that Tom Cruise was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> was Maybe that, that um, yeah. it was, did he have to bow out because of like, like his personal life like yeah I remember, yeah there was a time when owen wilson it was around the making of darjeeling like mm. he attempts suicide uh at some oh, point and it's like and it's actually like looking back at this film it's kind of incredibly dark like thinking about like right. 
that choice, you know, that happens in this film with Luke Wilson's character, you know, this movie being co-written with Owen Wilson. I just wonder if like suicide is something that has kind of always been on his mind or like that he has struggled with for a long time. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like struggling with depression. Totally, yeah. Man, I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's um, uh, it, it's it was after his breakup with uh, Kate Hudson, I believe, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of like I remember the media sort of blaming it on that, which who knows if that was the case. But uh, to that note, like I totally agree with you, Eric. Like I think not only Owen Wilson, not only does he bring like a level, like a, a type of humor into the an- early Anderson films that might disappear after this but he also brings like i think some of the more grounded like uh more meaningful grounded human emotion (laughs) to the the anderson stuff because like not I, i don't think anderson really misses in any of his films but i think like after this the concepts get so big and sprawling and complicated that like a lot of the more meaningful moments that I felt in Rushmore and Bottle Rocket and Tenant Bombs, I think kind of disappear or they kind of get a little bit more diluted. Like, like mm-hmm. I found myself like really emotional at certain parts of this film and Rushmore and Bottle Rocket or felt like they had some sort of like um, some sort of heart to them that is, is still there in other Anderson movies. But I do think it's, it's harder with the cast that are that large to like, really focus on like individuals and individual performances and like some of the more like, I don't know, darker themes or more or more grounded themes that, that you see in these early ones. Oh, that's really interesting. So you think that Owen Wilson is kind of like the anchor in the early films and he's the most closely related one that we can agree with. So whenever you see these dark situations happen, we can see it through his lens the most and therefore we'll feel the most impact. I think so. I think there's something to that, like where we're like, you know, we immediately from this film, like we'll, we'll do life aquatic, which is sort of like, it's sort of like premise over, uh, like character or, or story or something where like, like it's just such a cool idea and a cool premise. And there are like emotional moments in that film for sure. But, Mm -hmm. but for me, Tenenbaums is like every scene is so loaded, you know, every scene is so charged and so important. And it like, um, there's something that like, I, I, I watched like interviews with the entire cast and like listening to Owen Wilson's take on like what he finds funny and interesting. It just was like, Oh yeah. Like this is probably why some of these early films are the way they are is because, you know, he's obsessed with like, family and like the things he finds funny are darker like they come from human insecurity rather than like slapstick comedy and um like and and it's something that you wouldn't necessarily guess from the co-star of zoolander you know but (laughs) but but it is like it is nonetheless like like pretty true that like by the time you get to the grand budapest hotel like that is almost like it's just a, a completely different kind of movie than this i think yeah, I I I think I had told you Charles before like uh I really kind of became disenchanted with Wes Anderson uh kind of you know in the past decade. Um I remember it was like it was one time when I rewatched The Darjeeling Limited and it kind of made me retroactively like think about all of his films and and you make a good point Jeremy. I think there is like it's the only way I can really describe it is like a certain heart to like some of his early films. But I do think it was like around that time when I was 
kind of turning my back on Wes Anderson, I saw uh, Moonrise Kingdom, which I've mm. only seen once. I saw it in theaters, and, and I thought that one was like, okay, it reinvigorated my faith. And, and since then, I, I, I do like Isle of Dogs as well. Oh, but yeah. I'm, I'm still, I'm, I still feel like I have to be extra critical when I watch Wes Anderson now and just be like, is this, is this really have heart or is this yeah. uh, style or, or what, you know? T- totally, yeah. I, and I think like, it's weird. It's almost like, like Wes Anderson clearly got the note that he is style over substance at some point. And it's almost like he, instead of like correcting that he like it was like because yeah. i'll be nothing but style and i'm not He's saying like there isn't heart in darjeeling or grand budapest um i think there is but it's just like it's just a lot more buried than in like these films where it's it's on its sleeve it's it like this is so uh emotionally charged like like this mm. like the character of chaz tenenbaum is like <laughs> the most heartbreaking <laughs> like human yeah. being alive <laughs> like um yeah uh and i think that it's uh yeah and i think i wonder if part of that has to do with like you know wes anderson also when like you're right like not only does owen wilson kind of not write any more of his films with him but like wes anderson also collaborates collaborates with like multiple people so like mm-hmm. it'll be schwartzman and noah bombach and roman coppola it'll be like a whole a slew of people he's getting creative input on in the script. And I think that might also sort of uh, affect the outcome of some of these other films, which again, I do think are great, but I just think like, I would say Isle of Dogs and Budapest are great for like different reasons than what makes this great. Yeah. Oh, well, I have a question then for all of y'all. If you think that he's playing for style over substance right now, do you think that he should continue doing that? Because there is a saying that you should just play to your strengths. And if he dilutes that, then it's no longer going to be the thing that people originally came to see his films for. Like, it's distinctly Wes Anderson. No other filmmaker does that. So should you continue being your own quote-unquote self? Or do you think that he should branch out and become a much more evolved filmmaker? Well, I, I think, oh, go ahead. I would like to see him. I would like to see him work with other writers. Um, I don't dislike his writing. I will say, disenchanted is a good word because that you use, Lee. Because I am kind of more recently disenchanted with uh, mm-hmm. uh, Wes Anderson's work. I didn't like Isle of Dogs. Um, I think. Uh, what was uh what what's the boy scout one oh moonrise uh, moonrise was the last one that i that i really liked of his but i would i i just my problems are always i'm i'm a big story guy i just i need a really good story and you know sometimes he pulls it off but i want him to do like a stanley what stanley kubrick did where he would like collaborate with a different writer and they would work together and I, you know, I don't think it has to be style or substance. I think he, I think he can, you know, he can do both, but I would love it for him to collaborate with other writers on the, on that side. It, I, think. I think there's a world where, um, Wes Anderson, instead of leaning into the, like the storybook quality of his films that he clearly lands on antenna bombs that I think works so well here that like, instead of leaning into that, he leans into like whatever that moment is where Luke Wilson stands in front of the mirror and attempts suicide. <laughs> like there's, mm-hmm. there's like a whole nother meta, like a, a, a alternate reality where he, he follows more that vibe of like, um, 
of like really like sh- showcasing like the complexities of like human emotion and like like I think this film just resonates so well with so many people and it's very relatable mm-hmm. uh, even though you know the characters are very disaffected which we'll get into performances later but like I I think that yeah there's a world where instead of like going like bigger in scope he goes like more uh, he goes bigger in mm. in like emotion and heart and like starts tackling maybe even some more complex uh ideas like i would i would argue that tenenbaums might be the most complex he ever gets within like actual grounded human thematic <laughs> like uh mm-hmm. a, a treaties or whatever because it's like he's dealing with like incest here and like uh like we said like uh bill murray and margot tenenbaums like age gap marriage and uh like there's just a, a lot going on here that's like really actually heavy it's like really heavy themes for a a film that's as light as tenenbaums and um it's kind of a cool way of talking about certain stuff actually like if you're able Mm -hmm. to do it in this in this presentation but instead he kind of just goes to like like i really like uh you know (laughs) steve zisu and and the idea of like an aquatic adventure like you know what i mean like he like uh he goes bigger in that way which is which is i think fine i i don't think that there's a right or wrong but i do think it would be interesting to see what it would be like if he went the other direction maybe what like wes anderson is like seeing himself like in the role of a director as it's more of like those big set pieces and, you know, huge sets and like, uh, this crazy art is, you know, I think his brother is like, uh, he, he collaborates with a lot cause his brother's like an artist. Uh, I imagine Wes Anderson doodles a lot or something like maybe like a Tim Burton type who yeah. will sketch something and you know, that becomes exactly what you see on camera. But, but I don't know. I, maybe he's just, he sees himself, uh, his role less, less about, the things we're talking about and more about is like, Oh, it's my duty to make this movie grand. You know? Totally. And it pays yeah. off because he's, he is good at it. So it's not like it's, you know, this would be sad if he was actually bad at this, but like he's, <laughs> he actually brings these, like these uh kind of like concepts that I've never even thought about before, like to life in a way that really actually I think is quite, I mean, quite grand and quite special like even though darjeeling for me as a film doesn't work uh like seeing india in that way is like like the visual style of it works for me <laughs> like this it's just the yeah. story i don't like <laughs> yeah i think i can't remember if this was something that someone had said about david lynch or not but but they they uh, explain that there's this theory that some people think in pictures and some people think in, in words. And I'm mm. someone who I definitely think in words. I yeah. think they said that Lynch is someone who thinks in pictures. And I think Wes Anderson is the same thing. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I would agree with that. Because, I mean, David Lynch's story, like a lot of people have problems with David Lynch's uh, writing. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's definitely not like the, um, the thing I'm coming to his films for. I'll, I'll say that. Right. I, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good point. And I think that that's, you know, may, probably true for a lot of people with Wes Anderson too, is they're not, they're, they're coming because they, it's just, it's, I mean, it's eye candy. It just looks great. And if you're, if you're into the aesthetic, it's really pleasing to just sit down in front of a Wes Anderson movie for two hours. 
Um, so anyway, the story, the starting point for the story's concept was the divorce of Anderson's mother and father, uh, ostensibly based on a non-existent novel and told with a narrative influence by the writing of J.D. Salinger. <laughs> um, so Salinger's characters uh, Fra- in Franny and Zoe inspired much of the child prodigy material. And also, I've read pretty much everything Salinger's written, and there's a lot of inspiration here taken from yeah. the Glass family. Have you guys, do you guys have any experience with reading Salinger? Oh, yeah. We started a book club that was initially only for Salinger books, which he, he had only written four, so we, we had to branch off that pretty quickly after we read the four. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, uh, I I didn't realize it was based on J.D. Salinger characters on the, the first two times that I watched uh, Royal Tenenbaums. It wasn't until this time that I had finally read all the Salinger novels that I rewatched Royal Tenenbaums, and you, you just can't miss it. Like, the Glass family yeah. influence is way too much onto uh the ton of bombs right there uh i i do have to ask you though i'm just really curious which salinger novel is actually your favorite uh let's see i think raise high the roof beams uh the roof beam uh that that novella is great that's the funeral one right okay it's been a long time yeah i think uh, so i think i think that's right is it is um i'm trying to remember is it called Nine Stories? Mm-hmm. And then Franny and Zoe, and then Raise High the Roof Beam is the uh, la- the last one, I believe. Um, I don't know, but yeah. yeah, and then I love the the short story, A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. <laughs> oh yeah! <laughs> if anyone has never read J.D. Salinger before, I mean, obviously Catcher in the Rye, but uh, is is great. But but a perfect day for banana fish is whenever whenever I have the opportunity to recommend some Salinger to someone, it's that story. Yeah, that whole I love that whole collection, the nine stories. It's maybe my favorite. Um, let's see here. Well, one thing, Eric, I was going to mention is uh, <laughs> the the film, uh, according to Wikipedia. Has an influence from the Orson Welles film, The Magnificent Ambersons, <laughs> was gonna, which yes, was going to be gonna our up. podcast name. It was going to be The Magnificent Andersons. And oh. then we found out that there was a podcast already called that that was about Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you see, they don't, they're not covering Paul W.S. Anderson. No. Yeah, so. that's, no. that's how you yeah. set yourself apart. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I actually watched uh, the Magnificent Ambersons. I'd never seen it. I watched it this week to, I mean, there are definitely some similarities with. Uh, it's like about a mother who's remarrying, and uh, I think I think if you if you're looking at the Wikipedia page, it mentions that Wes Anderson was like either directly or like indirectly influenced by the the set of the Magnificent Ambersons and kind mm. of designed um, his set around it, but. But yeah, good movie, by the way. I need to watch that. It, it's always intrigued me. It, just also the story around the film has intrigued me, but like I've never seen a frame of it. I don't know what it looks like or anything. There's some really cool shots, but um, yeah, I think the story you're, you're, that you're talking about, it's like it was uh, the ending was changed or something. Right, yeah. There's famously yeah. like no actual director's cut of the film um, mm-hmm. that preserves like Orson Welles' intention, I guess. Uh so it remains like a sort of a film enigma. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's something I've always wanted to check out, um, but never, never have. 
the Royal Tenenbaums was shot in and around NYC. Um, so I guess he used uh, fashions and sets combining the appearance of different time periods. That is something that David Lynch has done as well in the past. And that's something yeah. that like when I watch this movie, I am never thinking about is this present or past uh-huh. if that makes sense <laughs> like it just is royal tenenbaums yeah. you know what i mean like i don't think of it in any specific time period but i i actually have a lot to say this go around or i noticed a lot of things about specifically time and time period um which we can maybe i can maybe get into a little bit right now but like uh there is yeah. some sort of like there's some sort of allusion to the 1970s that is kind of thro- like thrown out in narration early on and mm-hmm. like uh because the characters are all literally wearing the same clothes <laughs> from yeah. childhood to adulthood <laughs> um the film like it never says when the film takes place but it at least has to be outside of the 70s and at least has to be in the 80s or later um i'm mm-hmm. guessing the film actually takes place in modern day because i was looking at some of the cars and like uh, there's like a motorcycle that's so very clearly from the mm-hmm. late 90s but uh i guess like the idea is that these characters were all stunted right they all like were you know yeah. were grew up in mm-hmm. the 70s and then were stuck in the 70s like that's why they're still wearing the 70s style adidas track suits and uh, <laughs> owen wilson looks like cormac mccarthy and like you know uh but it i i feel like the film is so inspired by other films of the 70s and the way it's shot and the way that it looks and specifically casting gene hackman i think is like the best thing Wes Anderson has ever done in his career. Oh yeah. <laughs> he was originally thinking of Gene Wilder. I know. I saw that as a piece See, of trivia and I'm glad that it didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think, uh, I, yeah, that's a good point. I, I really like, I think Gene Hackman is what makes the movie work in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think Gene Wilder, well, th- the reason being is like Gene Hackman's character in this is like kind of a jerk it really kind of balances out the overwhelming like amount of quirk of all the other characters <laughs> and everyone's like so kishy and he's just like not going to stand for it. He's yeah. kind of like this, um, I don't know, litmus, not litmus test, but like a, bar- like he's, he's like the, he brings you back, I guess. Like he's, he's there to kind of anchor it without yeah, he, yeah. It being too fictional. He's the audience's sort of way into the film, I think mm. in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. You know, he's like, and this is so interesting, right? Because we'll get into some trivia probably in a second about how Gene Hackman and Wes Anderson famously like did not get along during the making of this movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I believe it was because of Gene Hackman's like absolute refusal to be a Wes Anderson character. Like he held true to his method and like who he thought his character was in such a way that it works so well in establishing him as an outsider to his own family because he's not in the same movie they're in. (laughs) Like they're, they're in a different movie than Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman is like playing, he's like, uh, you know, um, actually playing emotion and like, you know, he's animated and he's like a regular human being. Whereas all these other people are really disaffected, uh, almost like, uh, hypnotic, like they're very droney in their, in their delivery and their performance. And, and Gene Hackman is like literally having none of it. And like it says in an interview, like, I don't care how many 
colorful ties he puts on me, I'm going to play this character the way I, I want to do it. <laughs> and, there was a thought I had when I was, when I was watching it and I was just admiring Gene Hackman and I, it was just like the idea. It's like, you can be impressed by an actor because they're, you know, by how good they're acting. And then there are actors that impress you because they're just, they seem just like a normal, like a real person. Right. And I was really feeling that in this uh, performance. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of Gene Hackman, I didn't know that he was, apparently, he, he can be pretty pretty difficult to work with. Uh, <laughs> a piece of, I guess, I mean, it kind of makes sense now, now that I think about it. But yeah, according to Angelica Houston, she, Bill Murray, and a few other cast members tried to remain protective of Anderson and his working with Gene Hackman. <laughs> uh, yeah, Hackman can be tough to work with, apparently. But uh did not know that. Did you hear? So that, I, did you see the end of that quote? Is that Houston said Bill Murray even showed up on his day off to yeah. watch over Wes Anderson during the time that he was working with Gene Hackman because they were trying to protect him from Gene Hackman? Oh, what wow. did they think was going to happen? I wonder. I don't know, man. Gene Hackman mutiny, just like <laughs> <laughs> I'm running this picture now. I had always thought um, that Bill Murray was hard to work with. He might be. Um, they just might get along really well. I don't know. I, From listening I think, to you guys' episode on Rushmore, it seems like Wes and Wes and Bill Murray get along really well. Though, though Charles, I think yeah. he, I've heard that he is infamous for like deny, like not taking roles and stuff. Like, yeah, he's definitely infamous for that. But also on the similar note, I had heard during the filming of Groundhog Day, the director Harold <laughs> Ramis wanted uh, Bill Murray's character to be to be played in a certain way. And I think Bill was just getting divorced at the time, so he wasn't in the right headspace. And he refused mm. to make it more of a comedy film. He wanted to make Groundhog Day a little bit more toward the dramatic side. So that's why he played his character that way, so, which is kind of similar to what Gene Hackman's kind of going through right here. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, there's so much good trivia to get into. The, the other thing I wanted to... Uh, point out that i read on imdb trivia is danny glover luke wilson and owen wilson all turned down parts in ocean 11 yeah Ocean's <laughs> 11 wow. to appear in this film uh i i just love the idea of the wilson brothers in that crew <laughs> pulling off that heist uh i don't know is there any other trivia i mean there is a lot of real interesting background on this film but i'd, I'd love to get into the plot is there anything else that uh there's one that we there's missed? one bit of trivia that I saw on Wikipedia, uh, Mordecai the Falcon was like ransomed. Like at at one point, it was captured by says a citizen of New Jersey who demanded <laughs> a price for its return. So oh that's why they at, later in the film when Mordecai returns, it's a it's just a different bird. <laughs> that is so funny. Like they even wrote in like a kind of a nice little touch yeah. to it. They, they played like, it off. It, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the last thing I want to mention before we get into the plot, too, is not even trivia, but just some facts about the film. Like, uh, And I guess it's because I want to keep these tallied. Like, this is uh, The music in this film is done by Mark Mothersbaugh, and the cinematography oh, yeah. is Robert Yeoman. Um, because at some point, certain like aspects of Anderson's like career will will start to change, and he'll start to like use different people for different projects, and like... Uh, this is there's like a murderer's row though of like Yeoman and Mothersbaugh and Anderson all kind of working together and like 
those films sort of feeling distinctly different than when he like changes music. Also, uh, this is the film that like kind of establishes like the players of Anderson, like his cast, mm-hmm. his regular cast, yeah. like the Wilsons are clearly already there, but like, and Bill Murray is now established as a, re- as a returning character, but then Angelica Houston is also now uh, entering into the fray and she'll be in almost every single one of his, his films to come. Uh, most notably though, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Danny Glover, and Gene Hackman never return. So, um, and I think that Danny Glover and Gene Hackman in particular are like stunning. And then of course, like Gwyneth Paltrow's character is iconic <laughs> and uh, Ben Stiller is, uh, you know, is it was actually kind of my, f- my favorite uh, coming out of this last viewing of it. Um, so, uh, and it's never been that way before. So we'll, we'll get into some of that stuff though, probably later on. So diving into the plot here, uh, Royal Tenenbaum explains to his three adolescent children, uh, Chaz, Margo and Richie, that he and his wife, Ethelin are separating Uh, Each of the children achieved great success at a young age. Chaz is a math and business genius from whom Royal uh, steals money. Margot, who was adopted, (laughs) was awarded a grant for a play that she wrote in the ninth grade. Richie is a tennis prodigy and artist who expresses his love for Margot through paintings. And Royal regularly takes Richie on outings with the other children. Eli Cash is the the Tenenbaums. Without the other children. Mm -hmm. Eli Cash is the Tenenbaum's neighbor and Richie's best friend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and I think we get like this whole Hey Jude uh, montage at the beginning. Uh, Yeah, what do you guys think at the beginning of this film? Yeah, that that, like orchestral Hey Jude is is Mm -hmm. really cool. And um, I I noted down like the, it's like one of the very early scenes, I think it's still part of this um, montage where like Royal is explaining to the kids... um, that you know he's getting a divorce they're getting a divorce the parents are getting a divorce i thought it was a really interesting i mean obviously like an obvious choice but uh, a director's choice of having royal all the way at the end of the table and the kids huddled up at the other side of the table like very far apart um mm-hmm. and just uh, i don't know what else i'd always thought the, oh i'm sorry go on lee oh no well i was just gonna say the I, I I think this is in like all of um, Wes Anderson's films, but like the wide angle lens, it sort of like warps the the image into sort of more of like an ovalish shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, mm. I always yeah I, I always never really got into that, but I think that's a very deliberate choice of of Wes Anderson. I also think that makes the comedy work really well because uh, like the popular <laughs> saying, comedy lives in a wide frame. So, but. Actually, not that I'm saying that out loud. Uh, West Ender films are funny because of the words, not because of the slapstick humor that occurs, which would utilize the wide frame. So I guess that's just coincidental that it happens to be wide frame. But uh, there's a oh sorry, go on. I was say there's some funny stuff and in, in there's some like funny slapstick stuff. But I think yeah, you're right. It's more of the comedy back and forth. I thought that it was a really sad opening montage because you can already tell that they're going to grow up to just only be prodigies and not geniuses. Mm -hmm. So there's a big difference between the two. So a prodigy is someone that can learn very quickly what other people have already figured out, whereas a genius discovers something that no one else has ever previously discovered. So prodigies learn Mm -hmm. and geniuses do. And the vast majority of child prodigies 
don't become adult geniuses. So these kids who are having like an accelerated childhood, like they are doing things that other children don't do, they're just going to grow up to be disillusioned adults. And you can kind of tell from this opening montage. So you're already set up for, yeah, you know, an emotional punch as the film develops. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I also like always have to adjust to just how rich they are. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like uh, they are, this is kind of like uh, in the style of like a Witt Stillman film or something where it's just like so opulent. Like, um, <laughs> and, like none of the concerns you're going to see in this movie. And I think they do a good job of like setting this up early. Is like, there is going to be no financial concern whatsoever. Like all of the concerns you're going to see in drama is going to come from some other place that is not due to any sort of disparity in class. Like they are, they're so rich that like Richie Tenenbaum gets to just sail the ocean on a, <laughs> on a, like a, on a ship uh, where he drinks like, um, what is that drink? He's a, it's like a, um, a bloody, bloody mary, mary. Yeah. yeah he drinks bloody marys all day long it's it's so um there's like such an element of fantasy right off the bat in just how beautiful and nice and clean all of the the, <laughs> the environments are you know um so uh 22 years later royal is kicked out of the hotel where he has been living <laughs> uh, the children are in a post-success slump with richie traveling the world on a cruise ship following a breakdown uh he writes to eli revealing his romantic love for margo uh chaz has become overprotective of his sons ari and uzi uh following his wife rachel's death in a plane crash margo is married to neurologist Rally St. Clair, from whom she hides her smoking and her checkered past. Uh, Rally is conducting research on a subject named Dudley Heinzbergen. Gosh. Gotta yeah. love Dudley. So, <laughs> so weird. Such a weird, like, other, like, D plot to the film is Raleigh Sinclair. It's like, he also, like, it's weird how, like, some of these, some of these stories and characters, like, it's like no one seems to fit quite perfect into it. Like he's just kind of like uh, in his own movie kind of, you know, where his wife's cheating on him and he's got this project he's working on and, you know, he's sort of a failed like genius himself. And like, uh, you know, there's like the Raleigh Sinclair movie. I'm also interested in watching. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I'm. I, I mean, I, you had a great. Uh, you came out of this movie really loving uh, Ben Stiller's performance. Mm -hmm. I had the same experience with Owen Wilson. Oh, I, perfect! <laughs> I yeah. had forgotten how funny he is. In this movie. <laughs> yeah, really, dude. Wildcat. Even funnier that he's kind of like not really a member of the family. Oh, he's just it's so good. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, Ethelin's longtime accountant, Henry Sherman, proposes to her. Uh, learning of Henry's proposal, Royal claims that he has stomach cancer <laughs> to win back his wife uh, and children's affections. Uh, Ethelin calls her children home, and Royal moves back in and sets up medical equipment in Richie's room. Royal learns of Chaz's uh, overprotective nature and takes his grandsons on an adventure involving shoplifting and dogfighting. Is that probably like, was that actually dogfighting? I because they do say it's dog blood, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought I, I, I don't know why I thought it was something more innocent, like they were watching like rats race, like in a, like a tube or something. I, I didn't realize it was uh, dog fighting. 
I, I actually thought My it was dice they were that. throwing. Oh um, yeah, they do throw dice. But right, maybe, yeah. but I guess it is dogfighting. Yeah. Well, I don't. I think so. I remember the line where he says, um, "Oh, that that's dog blood. That's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't worry, that's dog blood." Mm-hmm. But I, you might be right, Charles. I don't know if we actually because I don't remember seeing dogs, but but there is an allusion to it in the in the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. There's I also this. I saw that oh, line. I saw that line as like. Uh, he was just making up an excuse. I think whoever wrote this Wikipedia <laughs> entry maybe just assumed that there was a dog right. fight because I don't remember seeing that, and it doesn't seem like something that seems awfully dark be in this. for a for a Wes Anderson <laughs> film. Because to me, that was a hilarious line where he had, he Ben Stiller's character is yeah. like concerned that it's human blood, and he's just like, "Oh, don't worry, it's just dog blood." <laughs> <laughs> it's like even worse, almost. Um, yeah, yeah. I think my favorite part of that sequence was like the bumper cars. I, I just yes. wrote down like Gene Hackman is my first choice Mario Kart character. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, uh, I yeah. There's a there's a there's a quote I never I've like I fully like have never heard before. I swear to God, mm-hmm. like I've never actually heard him say this, even though it's I've seen this movie so many times. And it's like right before. I think it's because the thing that follows is such a spectacle. It's like got me and Julio down by the schoolyard and it's like the montage Mm -hmm. of them doing hilarious stuff. But right before that, he's on the phone calling, I believe it's a, it's like a self-defense class. Did did you guys know what I'm talking about? And on Uh the phone, he, they, they describe the class and Royal Tenenbaum says like (laughs) one of the coolest things I've ever heard. He just says, I'm talking about putting a, putting a brick through the other guy's windshield. I'm talking about taking it out and chopping it up. <laughs> like, that's the kind of class he wants to take with his grandkids. Um, on their return, Chaz berates him for endangering his boys while Ro- Royal accuses Chaz of having a nervous breakdown. That's oh, so good. Uh, Eli, with whom Margot has been having an affair, tells her that Richie loves her. Royal discusses the affair and objects to Margot's treatment of Rally, uh, who confides to Richie his suspicions of Margot having an affair. Uh, he and Richie hire a private investigator to surveil, surveil her. Meanwhile, Henry investigates Royal's cancer claim and discovers his hospital had closed. Uh, his doctor does not exist, and his cancer medication is only candy, specifically Tic Tacs, I believe. Uh, he confronts uh, Pagoda, the servant, and gathers the family to tell them that Royal has been lying about his illness. Afterwards, Royal and Pagoda move out. Mm-hmm. And Pagoda, Pagoda stabs. Like, stabs him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really he stabs Royal again. That's the last time he'll put a knife in me, Pagoda. Uh, then he like picks him back up and like helps him into the car. Yeah, yeah. it's so it's so great. Um, I actually, a quick aside, just because we're on Pagoda for a second, like uh, Kumar, mm-hmm. the actor who plays Pagoda, who was in all the great Anderson films, and who's you know passed away, you know however long ago. Like he, oh, that's right. he owned a uh, coffee shop in Dallas, the city I grew up in, and mm-hmm. uh, that's famously like where Wes Anderson met him. It's like one of Wes Anderson's favorite spots. It's called Cosm mm-hmm. the Cosmic Cup, I believe. And I used to go in there all the time, uh, hoping to see him, and I, and I never did. And it was a huge bummer. But it was like a, it's like one of the first like vegan spots you could actually go to in, in Dallas. And uh, nice, uh, really kind of kind of a, just a cool piece of re- like IRL trivia about about the guy. But um, <laughs> yeah, I always thought like Pagoda was just such a like a funny part of this whole mess, right? Like, I mean, later we'll get the line like take pagoda back will you <laughs> like it's just they're just like pawning him off back and forth trading pagoda 
uh, funny stuff. I like that he, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I like that Pagoda held on to uh, Royal's innocence because I believe mm-hmm. Henry pulls them all into the room to go confront Royal about faking the stomach cancer. And he says, mm-hmm. I think that Pagoda has something to say to you guys. And then Pagoda says, no, he, no, he has cancer. Like, it's, it's sticking <laughs> yeah. with the story. <laughs> and it makes sense. It makes sense in a, a story wise because he wouldn't just admit right then. It's like, oh, no, this was all a lie. He's going to commit to it, and that's going to make Henry <laughs> increasingly mad, and he's going to tell the truth. So I was like, oh, that that even though it's such a short line of dialogue, just like two or three lines, it completely makes sense in my mind. I love it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Richie and Raleigh get the private eyes report on Margot, which reveals her history of smoking and sexual uh, promiscuity including a previous marriage to a Jamaican recording artist. Real quick, uh, that uh-huh. there was also a scene, I don't know if you guys caught this, but earlier in the film, we get this like like fake Charlie Rose show where right. uh, mm-hmm. Owen Wilson is talking and like like leaves the the set saying Wildcat and uh, it's really funny <laughs> and it's so clearly yeah. modeled after like Charlie Rose, like that type of show. Like it has the black background and, and, and all that stuff. And then later in the sequence, we see she's on that show and he's groping her. And yeah, I re- oh. Oh, go ahead. Well, just like from what we know of Charlie Rose, like he has been canceled as a sexual predator. And I was texting with my friends and I was like, Hey, like was like, do we think this was a coincidence or was this like an open secret like from this long ago? Cause it's like almost, it's like huh. almost 20 yeah. years ago. <laughs> it, yeah. It would have been like prior knowledge. Right. Um, I think I had read like, or I saw like an article that was like pointing to whenever, you know, whenever Charlie Rose was canceled, um, it was like, you know, Royal, you know, the Royal Tenenbaums had this, you know, 10 years ago or something, you know? Oh. I guess yeah. it was uh, an open secret. I know that uh, if you watch a lot of shows from like the late 90s, early 2000s, there's a lot of shows that use Matt Lauer as a punchline for him being a sexual predator. And mm. at the time, I thought it was just because it would be funny to paint someone that's uh, really wholesome or like mm-hmm. quote-unquote wholesome as the punchline. But no, I guess they were just doing an open dig and no one caught on. Wow. Mm. That's yeah. That that shocked me when I saw it because I was like, it's not exactly like a punchline, you know. It's 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 meant to show like just how much of like a rough life or like a promiscuous life she's had. But it's yeah, it yeah. is such a weird. It's such a, like, a weird thing to see. Like we just saw this this you know man like interviewing Eli Cash, and uh, now we're seeing him like it's completely other like super disturbing light. Yeah, it was. It, it's something I yeah. never noticed in that sequence before too. I like the shot too is, is kind of, um, uh, I don't know, cryptic maybe, I don't know the right word, but it's sort of like divided into two, mm-hmm. like divided in the middle. Cause you're, uh, you see inside the window on the right side and you can see him like groping Margot, I believe. And then on the left side, it's like outside in the hall. So I think I, I don't think I actually ever saw that frame, you know, whenever I would totally. watch it except for this time. Cause I never really, cause it happens so fast. It's part of this, um, montage that's like flipping through all of her, um, affairs or, or whatever her lovers. And, you know, if you're not looking on the right side of the frame, if your eye gets drawn to the left, you, you might miss it. Totally. Uh, both men take the news hard, with Richie going into a bathroom, shaving off his hair and beard, and slashing his wrists uh, in an attempt of suicide. Dudley finds him. It is kind of funny that Dudley's the one that... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I found myself laughing, even though it's like, 
it kind of is a horrifying moment because there's no sound. Mm-hmm. But I was yeah. like, I don't think they were trying super hard to like punch it up as a joke. But it, I think it you, it's okay to laugh at it. Oh, it, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it works. He's like, he's like his mouth is just open. <laughs> Dudley reminds me of uh, like a young Martin Starr. Yes. Oh wow! I never thought about that. He does. <laughs> Uh, both men, uh, oh, Dudley finds him in Rally, <laughs> rushes him to the hospital. That's a sentence, right? Mm-hmm. Dudley finds him in Rally, rushes him to the hospital. Uh, no, that's an error in the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, wow, uh, I whenever thought there was, was no mind, sound right. for a split second right there, uh, whenever Dudley finds him and then they cut to the hospital, it, it is, in my opinion, very funny, but it would have been, there's no way they would have done it, but I thought they were going to cut him with like yakety sacks or something whenever like they're pushing <laughs> him in the hospital bed. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as the Tenenbaums sit in the waiting room, Rally confronts Margot, and then she leaves. Uh, Richie escapes and meets with Margot to confess his love. They share their secret love, and they kiss. I hate that sentence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for writing it that way. They share their secret love. <laughs> uh, Royal decides that he wants Ethelin to be happy and finally arranges for a divorce. Before Henry and Ethelin's wedding, Eli... High on mescaline, crashes his car into the side of the house. Oh, man. Uh, Royal accuses Ar- or rescues Ari and Uzi, but the boy's dog, Buckley, is killed. Uh, enraged, Chaz chases Eli through the house and wrestles him to the ground. Eli and Chaz agree that they both need psychiatric help. Uh, Chaz thanks Royal for saving his sons and for buying them a Dalmatian from the responding fireman as a replacement for Buckley. 48 hours later, Ethlyn and Henry are married in a judge's chambers. Yeah, there's like a number of scenes that I guess I knew this before, but now I'm like, I didn't really know, a, like, I guess recognize a pattern of like mm-hmm. two characters who are unlikely uh, relating to each other that maybe mm-hmm. wouldn't have otherwise. Like, you know, this scene is... Obviously, you know, Chaz is laying down next to Eli and they I don't think they've actually had a scene together the whole movie. And Eli says, you know, I think I need help. And Chaz says, me too. And then you have like earlier, like another Eli moment where he's like, I always wish that I was a Tenenbaum and Royal says, me too. <laughs> like there's yeah. like, there's like a handful of scenes that's like uh, unlikely pairings of people like really coming to a mutual understanding and I just, I guess I'm just like, it's like too uh, specific to be on accident. I just wonder like, kind of like, what's the theme there? It's like, I guess I don't really know. It's just, but it, but it does, but like those, those scenes are almost identical to each other. Um, yeah. I wonder if like when writing it, you know, you imagine a bunch of um, note cards on like a cork board and they have like the characters and they're like, okay, the, now we need a scene. You know, it's like mm-hmm. trying to figure out the relationships between yeah, some characters it's very obvious, but then it's like, well, what would it be like if Royal had a scene with Eli? You know, right. stuff like that, maybe. Right. And it writes its own scene, I guess. Yeah. He tosses him over the wall, and he lands in a <laughs> Japanese garden. Is there a particular yeah. is there a particular reason why it's a Japanese garden, uh, or is it just like it just looks pretty to look at? Maybe like Zen. I was thinking it was like yeah. it's like it's like crossing over into like a calming and peaceful area. Oh, or, okay. Or yeah, I huh. like that. Uh, sometime later, Margot releases a new play inspired by her family and past events. 
Yeah. Uh, mixed Rally, reviews. <laughs> yeah. Rally publishes a book about Dudley's condition. Uh, Eli checks himself into a drug rehabilitation facility in North Dakota. Richie begins teaching a junior tennis program. Chaz becomes less overprotective of his children. Royal seems to have improved his relationship with all of his children and seems to be on better terms with Ethelin. Uh, he has a heart attack and dies at the age of 68. Chaz accompanies him in the ambulance on the way to the hospital and is the only witness to his death. The family attends his funeral where the epitaph dubiously reads that he hmm. died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking <laughs> battleship. <laughs> it's, like, it's like one word too many. <laughs> like destroyed <laughs> sinking battleship is like so <laughs> redundant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's that's uh, Tenenbaums. Yeah, I love that epitaph. Obviously, because it's like uh, it it's like uh, it refers to earlier when they're in the cemetery and uh, they see like the different epitaphs. And it's like, man, mm. I need something great like that when I get buried. Mm-hmm. And and uh, but also like it's totally blown out of proportion. But uh, like metaphorically, it totally makes sense. You know, like he. What is it? died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed, you know, like a, a, a sinking battleship being their, I don't know, their adulthood or their family life needed rescuing. Yeah, their generational trauma is kind of how I, I see it is like yeah. he caused this. And so it's like his whole job, the whole movie is to like undo what he already did. And he kind of succeeds in a way like he, he starts to mend like like through him coming back it like somehow mends everybody else starts to correct you know it's almost like uh, he uncurses them in some sort of weird way i kind of thought his job maybe reflected that i don't know if i'm looking into it too deep but later in the film he becomes an elevator operator and Mm. that's when richie asks him whenever he's on the floor for advice so just as you ask an elevator operator for which floor you want to go to, Richie asked his father what to do. And I thought, like, maybe there's some similarities between mm. the two. Like, he's now becoming a father figure, and that's relating to the fact that he's guiding people on which floor to go to. Totally. And it's also illustrating that he has become humbled and less selfish and more of a mm. servant type. Because the whole film, it's like, me, me, me. All he wants is... He wants things without actually giving back. And so finally... Like, like he, he wants to just like live in that hotel without being able to pay for it, you know? like, <laughs> And so eventually, he like learns, like, you know what? Like, I have to basically humble myself and become like a servant. And he does that for his family. And he does that for his wife. And he does that for people he doesn't even know. And, you know, like, uh, and that's sort of illustrated in him being the elevator operator. So I like that read. I didn't think about that until you said it. You know, there's one like question I, I thought about at the, it's like in the end of the movie when it's like in the wreckage of after Buckley gets run over. Um, and it's sort of this kind of like continuous, like moving shot. Uh, where we pan over like the fire truck and the new dog spark plug. And then at some point, um, Richie is like, he hurt his eye or something. And he's getting a consultation from Royals, like fake doctor. Um, But so I was wondering, it's like, why is, because I thought I could be wrong, but I thought Richie already knew that um, that guy wasn't a doctor or was he not in on that from the beginning? 
that's a good question. I do think it's just a gag. Like it's just a like right. it is just a, a, a throwback uh, to that idea. Yeah, that or he's the doctor. Or like um, I, I think maybe so. It's pretend you're Luke Wilson for a second, and you already know this guy isn't a doctor, and then he walks up and gives you a qu- quick consultation. <laughs> like I think that's the moment. That's fine. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I also, you know, it. I don't. I also think it's like. I also think that that whole sequence to me. I think was like less uh, affecting than it had ever been in this, in this viewing, which is like weird mm-hmm. because a lot of the film illuminated itself for me. And then some, some parts that I'd actually thought were like my all time favorite moments had kind of dimmed a little. And like that, like that mm-hmm. last sequence I don't find is like funny. Like Bill Murray's just asking the priest, like if he has an alternate and I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Like we could have like punched that up <laughs> a little, <laughs> uh, but of course, like the end of it is it, it's punctuated perfectly with Chaz telling his dad, like I've had a rough year, dad. And like, that's yeah. just like, Oh my God, <laughs> waterfalls. Right. <laughs> like I'm just like, I'm just like dabbing my eyes. It's like, it's just so satisfying for him to finally call him dad and to do it in such a vulnerable way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if you're new to the podcast, we, at the end of uh, going through these movies, we like to, we like to rank them. Ultimately, we're trying to figure out, you know, who is the ultimate Anderson uh, director. <laughs> and uh, so we we're, we've got a little ranking system. Uh, we started as a Chucky podcast, so our ranking <laughs> system is out of four Chucky freckles. So four <laughs> Chucky freckles is like a perfect movie, uh, and you can give less than one if you really, if you really want to. Uh, we we decided that during the Event Horizon episode that we're <laughs> 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 we will go below below one if the movie's bad enough, but. <laughs> Uh, let's do, let's go around and we'll start with you, Lee, and uh, we'll go around and you know overall thoughts on the film and and what would how many chuckle Chucky freckles would you give this movie? Um, yeah, like I said, I, I've been like disenchanted in the past with Wes Anderson. I think for the longest time this was uh, my favorite of his films. Somehow it got overshadowed by Steve Zissou, which I can't even remember. Like if you ask me about that movie, I don't remember anything that happens in it, but, <laughs> uh, no, I, th- I think this may, s- may actually still remain, um, maybe my favorite, uh, Wes Anderson film. Um, there's a few of them obviously that I've only seen once. Um, but, uh, if I had to give it a rating, I was, I'm, I'm used to like a out of five scale. So I've done a little conversion. I think I would do <laughs> like a, a three out of five, but in, in the Chucky freckles scale, that would, that would be something more like 2.5 freckles out of four. Love it. Charles, <laughs> what do you got? So I think that Wes Anderson always has this monotone kind of stilted dialogue, which works for Royal Tenenbaums because the characters are emotionally underdeveloped neurotic beings due to the misfortune of being child prodigies who've been watched up and a neglectful, manipulative father. I think it works in his favor that these characters seem kind of hollow or at least the way that they deliver dialogue, which uh, is a big plus for me. I think that if I had to rate it on the the Chucky Freckle scale, it's out of four, <laughs> right? Like... Four, yes. four, I will give it three. Yep. Three out of four. That's a fine score. Uh, fine Jeremy, score. what do you got, my man? And so, remember, Jeremy, you gave Mortal Kombat a 3.25. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I did, and I stand by that rating. That is a good rating for that film. Uh, so a quick thing about me is, like, I, 
this is going to sound kind of heavy, and but I did want to talk about it because it, it was just weighing on my mind, like through rewatching Tenenbaums this time. Is like, like last year, um, I had like um, a ton of family death uh, happen, and so it like I, I think there in everybody's life, there's like the the period where you're invincible and you you don't think of death and then at some point death becomes a very real thing to a human being and you start to consider it in a real way and i think from that point on your life kind of changes and i think you sort of like you start to see the world a little differently like you know we don't have a lot of time left or you know like uh you know time is fleeting and like we're going to we're going to all you know not exist at some point and yeah it's very sad but it's also you know you start to come to terms with it and so, like, my sensitivities to certain things and, like, the things I'll notice in rewatching films is, like, completely different now that I'm a little older. You know, I'm in my early 30s and, um, you know, uh, really, I think I think about death a lot and I think about, you know, um, way more than I did in my 20s. So, in my 20s, you know, watching Tenenbaums was all about you know, the musical moments of it, right? Like the me and Julio down by the schoolyard moment or, uh, you know, how cool that ending is with that Van Morrison song playing and like, uh, you know, the Elliot Smith uh, moment I thought was just so cool and visceral, you know? Um, but this time, like, I really related to Chaz <laughs> a lot and like uh-huh. what Chaz was going through and I'd never noticed it before, but he is having a mental breakdown, like the whole film. He's like, he's like lost his wife in a, in a violent way and uh, doesn't want to lose his kids. And uh, at every moment, like, like Ben Stiller says in an interview, the reason why they're dressed in Adidas tracksuits is because he's afraid of losing them in a crowd. It's an easy way mm-hmm. to spot somebody is if they're all wearing matching clothes. So like, it's not just a stylistic choice. There's like a narrative reason for them to all be dressed the same way. And in that kind of silly getup, uh, I found like the, the ending of this film with Chaz to be one of the most complete circles and like narratives. I was like, I can't believe like he gets to be there when his dad dies and he gets to actually watch somebody really close to him die as opposed to just hearing about it, you know, with his wife. Like uh, this is how he almost gets to uh, come to terms with both his wife's death and his father's death. like not you know his father's love or whatever also kind of being a dead thing to him his whole life um and so like uh you know i for me watching this film again i found it to be like way more serious than i'd ever given the film credit for and be de- and dealing with like way more consistent and serious themes and i think even a lot of later wes anderson's uh films end up doing uh so again this is my favorite Wes Anderson film. It remains my favorite Wes Anderson film. Uh, and again, still one of my favorite movies of all time. So I can't give it anything less than a four out of four. Four out of four, Chucky Freckles. Oh boy. For me. A perfect score. The only other film I've given that is Boogie Nights mm-hmm. on this list. Oh, wow. So uh, yeah. Boogie Nights and Royal Tenenbaums. And you know what? I believe they're on the same. <laughs> I, I think those films are as good as one another. Uh, but Eric? Yeah. Lay it on me, baby. Yeah, I've been enjoying. Uh, I've been enjoying sort of the humor in these early Wes Anderson movies, uh, and you know, obviously Owen Wilson's influence on the on the writing side. I think this is to me. I I guess Royal Tenenbaums is kind of categorized as 
a comedy. Um, but to me, this is like Wes Anderson sort of dipping his toes into just like a straight up drama that has a lot of really funny, witty humor in it. And it, for me, this movie is like the perfect balance of drama and comedy. And the comedy that is there is so smart and funny. And I, I really like this movie a lot. I think I, I said going in to covering Wes Anderson movies that the Royal Tenenbaums was probably my second favorite, uh, Bottle Rocket being my first. And I think so far I, I stand by that. I really, I really do like this movie a lot. Um, not quite as much as Bottle Rocket, however. Uh, and I, I did give Bottle Rocket a four, four out of four. Hmm. Um, I'm going to give Royal Tenenbaums... A solid 3.25 out of... You know what? I'm going to give it a 3.5. I'm thinking about... Oh, you, gotta, you talked gotta about... What happened? <laughs> you talked about the soundtrack, and I'm just... You know, I've got that damn Van Morrison song stuck in my head, and this is the first time I heard Needle in the Hay by oh, Elliot Smith. Yeah, I was yeah. like... 15 years old or something uh, this got me into like elliot 12. smith I, I i didn't know who he was before this film and i went and researched him after i watched it and found out he was already dead which was unfortunate but got into all of his albums after this yeah that man that's a great one though when you discover elliot smith and mm. you just got a lot you got a lot to chew on there there's so much good stuff but uh Lee and Charles, this has been such a fun conversation. Uh, I I encourage all of our listeners to check out Northern Exposure and uh, your podcast, Northern Overexposure. I know you guys are on, uh, you took a little break after season three. Uh, do you have, uh, when, when, when do you plan on coming back for season four? Well, wait, when is this episode going to be released? So right I now. can give you an exact date. As soon as my calendar loads, uh, October 29th, 28th or 29th. Okay. There's a strong possibility that we, you know, as we're talking now, you can go and listen to uh, season four, episode one of Northern Overexposure podcast. Um, If you're waiting for it, we've got a lot of stuff like already kind of in the chamber, just kind of like building up our... Uh, our recording, so we have a steady release schedule, so we don't have to take so many breaks in the middle of a season. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, hopefully, while the time you're listening to this, you can come check out our podcast and stay tuned for the fifth episode, season four, episode five, Blowing Bubbles, to hear uh, Eric give his take on the episode. Yeah, we'd love to oh, have yeah. you on, Jeremy, as a guest as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would absolutely love to be on anytime. Yeah, we got to get you into Northern Exposure now. I have been. Please get Jeremy into Northern Exposure. <laughs> it, I feel like it's time. It's a, now is as good a time as any. I mean, we're. I mean, it's like it's not like quarantine right. is right. over. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, Jeremy, anything? Anything to plug over there? Nah, you know what? Just follow me on Twitter at Ocarina of Crime, and please go ahead and check out that Patreon. I mean, it's there really is some good stuff on there, and like I always say, you can always, uh, you can always, you know, subscribe at the five dollar tier, gobble up all the content, download it, and then unsubscribe. You know, just get in there and get out if you want. You know, it's, uh, it's. I, I just want people to hear it because I feel like the coverage me and Eric do over there is a lot, is a lot of fun. Is it's not more fun than the regular show? It's just different. You know, we let our hair down. We take we we put our yeah, sh- we put that, sh- we're wearing shorts on it flip flops. 
that Hubie Halloween episode we did. I want to plug our Hubie Halloween episode yeah. specifically because, uh, man, that was a did, did Lee and Charles. I hate to keep you guys so long, but did you see oh, Hubie know. Halloween? Uh, by the way, yeah, you're not keeping us long. We we record for for like way too long, Perfect. and have like so many like bathroom breaks, and it's just like uh, I, I have not seen Hebe Halloween. I've heard it's like pretty great for you know a, a Happy Madison production. I'm I'm like really eager to see it. I had heard that uh, for Uncut Gems, if he did not win the Oscar, Adam Sandler said he was gonna make like the crappiest movie ever. I don't know if this is the movie that he was alleging to. But I actually like Adam Sandler's Netflix films. I'm not gonna lie and say that like they're high cinema or anything, but I think they're enjoyable to watch with your family. It's like a, you know, pleasant family films. But I have not seen Hubie Halloween yet. Uh, I plan to though. Great. Gonna have well, that that bonus content to listen to when we watch it. Well, you know, you're in luck. We've got a preview there on the feed. I started doing previews of some of the bonus episodes. So you all can check that out. And uh, that's patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy for the full weekly bonus episodes. Thanks for listening. Next week, Jeremy, what are we doing? Another, uh, we're doing PTA, right? We're doing PTA Magnolia, uh, which is uh, previously my favorite movie of all time. Time. So uh, yeah. that definitely that was a definitely a high school favorite movie of all time. But yeah. uh, I'm interested to go back because it's been a very long time since I've gone back to that film. So I I'm very excited to 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 go back. I'll definitely be listening to that episode. Love it. So uh, thanks again, guys. That's uh, check out Northern Overexposure and Patreon.com/slash Eric and Jeremy and Norma. I'll see you in my dreams. Thank you.